Hello, Clear Skies Ahead listeners. This is Kelly Savoy, and I'm hoping you can take a moment of your time to rate and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We have produced over 60 episodes, and you can help us reach even more individuals that will benefit from the diverse experiences shared by our guests. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this new episode. Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series, Clear Skies Ahead, conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Emma Collins, and we'll be your hosts. We're excited to give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're happy to introduce today's guest, Andrew Markowitz, a meteorologist at Xcel Energy in Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Andrew, could you tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest in meteorology and how it influenced your educational path? Yeah, so for me, which I'm sure is true for many people in this field, it was kind of started at a very young age. Like I remember being about five or six and just kind of infatuated with the Weather Channel, just had it on all the time. I read a lot of books growing up about different weather phenomena. Uh, so I wouldn't say that it was just a storm that got me into the weather, unlike other people. It was just more so a general interest in the science. And then, you know, later on, I just uh, became fascinated with the big storms. So that was kind of what sparked it. And then when I was seven years old, uh, I, my parents thought it would be a good idea for me to audition for a guest weather person contest in Philadelphia, just because they knew that it was something that I was interested in. And so I went to the Franklin Institute and got to meet Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. And there were about 65 people there, most of whom were about twice my age, and ended up winning the contest, did the weather on TV for a day in Philadelphia on NBC10. And, you know, from there is just one of the biggest memories that I think I have from growing up and something that I just never forgot about. And neither did the passion. The passion, the passion just uh, kind of continued all throughout my schooling. So in middle school, another example of you know, what I think is kind of a sign of this being a destiny for me is that, you know, when you're a Jewish person like I am, you have a bar mitzvah, and that's kind of the sign of becoming a man. And so on my day, it was December 19th, 2009, which ended up being the biggest December snowstorm in recorded history in uh, my hometown. So every other kid would have been upset because, you know, a lot of people couldn't make it. We had to cancel uh, half the festivities, including most of the parties. But me, I was just happy that it snowed and I was excited <laughs> for it. So uh, that kind of just signaled, again, that weather was just kind of my calling here. And, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm an overly spiritual person, but to me, that was kind of a sign from above if there was one that weather was kind of my destiny in life. And, you know, the passion kind of continued all throughout high school. I became kind of famous for predicting snow days in high school and again during college. And, uh, you know, because of all of that, I ended up doing advanced weather camp at Penn State my junior year of college, kind of going to my or junior year of high school, going into my senior year. And that kind of solidified that one, um, you know, that was a career path that I could go into and I felt like I could make a difference. And number two, that Penn State was kind of the place I wanted to be. So that got me to going to Penn State where I graduated and the weather just continues to be an integral part of my life from there. So, you know, just feel like I'm living a dream every day, which you know, I, I'm really thankful to be able to say. 
Wow. I can't believe... How old were you when you won that contest? I was seven years old. Oh my God. That's awesome. Did you like prepare for it? Did you really prep? Uh, From what I remember, they just kind of gave me a script and I just kind of winged it. (laughs) That's incredible. How, How much fun. You must have been so excited. Oh yeah. I mean, that's one of the greatest memories of my childhood. I mean... You know, I I still talk about it to this day. So yeah, I was uh, beyond excited about that. (laughs) I don't even know if I remember anything from being seven. You mentioned the advanced uh, weather camp. Do you remember anything in particular that definitely like, this is what I want to pursue later as a meteorologist? Did, Did you ever do anything there that sparked your interest? Yeah. So the advanced weather camp at Penn State, you know, every year they have a subset of people coming in from all across the country and the advantage of being at Penn State is you have access to a bunch of different resources. So in the small town of State College, you have an NWS office, you have AccuWeather, so you get exposure to the private sector and the public sector. And I always thought it was interesting kind of going to both places, but I think the idea of just being surrounded by other people who love the weather when I was the only one who grew up, it was something that made me want to feel a part of that community. And then, uh, you know, they didn't really delve into all of the options that you could do with the degree. But I was starting to realize that, hey, you know, people care about the weather and I can actually make a difference in people's lives. That's great. So what opportunities did you pursue inside and outside of school that you knew would be beneficial to securing a job in your profession? Well, so, you know, I was someone who was very involved uh, on my campus, so both in meteorology and outside of meteorology. So inside of meteorology, uh, I did our campus weather service for four years. So that gave me experience as a forecaster writing weather discussions Uh, as well as doing uh, broadcasts that were aired on YouTube. I'd say uh, with frequency once a month that I would do it, and then I would do it behind the scenes for other people. So that was kind of the best way, I thought, to gain exposure uh, before going into the real world. Uh, Aside from that, I was vice president of our storm chase team. I went storm chasing for three summers with Penn State. And that was kind of an example of, uh, you know, first of all, I was kind of pursuing a lifelong dream I had of seeing a tornado in the plains. But secondly, Um, It was just more so getting that hands-on exposure to the things you learn in the classroom. And that kind of just made it all real for me, you know, after sitting through uh, dynamics in those other classes. Uh, Aside from that, I was also president of our Weather Risk Management Club. And that was kind of a a way to uh, make people aware, myself included, of different career paths in meteorology that we don't traditionally think of. And, you know, that kind of being involved with that kind of solidified me on the career path that I was in, as opposed to a more traditional career, like in the private sector, like as an operational forecaster or uh, someone who was on TV or working for a National Weather Service office. So those were kind of the three main things in meteorology. But I also wanted to make sure that I got to do things outside of meteorology, being at a big school. So I was very involved in our dance marathon at Penn State, which is the largest student-run philanthropy in the world. So I was helping out uh, both in terms of the fundraising aspect, but then also with a committee that made sure that things ran smoothly. So all of that, you know, I'd say that the college experience was definitely uh, what I was looking at, or looking forward to. And, you know, I'd say I made the most of it. Yeah, definitely. Sure sounds like it. <laughs> so what was your first job in the field and how did you end up where you are now? Yeah, so my first job in the field, it was right after I graduated in 2019, I worked as an intelligence analyst at WorldAware in Annapolis, Maryland. And basically that job was one where I looked at severe weather all around the world and I wrote up reports that said, okay, well, this is where severe weather is happening. 
this is the time frame, and then this is what you need to do to prepare, as well as the assets that would be affected. So the target audience here uh, were various businesses that subscribe to our services, primarily for people that were traveling on business, but just kind of in general. So, you know, I like the idea that it was kind of a straight up forecasting job. That's what I was interested in, but also had applications into the business and finance sector, which I also had a degree in. Uh, so I had that job and then uh, I was kind of uh, through the pandemic, we switched to work from home and I started really thinking about what I wanted in my career. And the energy sector felt like my calling. It wasn't really easy to get into. Like I didn't really see any jobs for it right after graduating, but I kind of figured that was kind of the path I wanted to go on. So my second job, I worked as a market associate slash meteorologist at Wood McKenzie in Boston. And with that one, uh, that one was doing weather forecasts, but tailored for the energy sector to traders who basically try to uh, figure out what demand is going to be on the electric grid or at least certain parts of the electric grid and try to make some money off of it. So I thought that was really interesting to kind of tie the two together. And then that kind of led me to my current opportunity at Excel Energy, where I'm kind of working on the utility side of things. So could you walk us through a typical day on the job as an energy meteorologist? Yeah, absolutely. And I can tell you uh, just kind of from the perspective of someone who works with traders and someone who works with utilities, since I have experience with both. So the idea is if you're working with someone who's a trader, that trader is trying to take advantage of what the market is looking like. So the best way to think about it is intuitively uh, weather is what the main driver is of demand across the U.S. every single day on the electric grid. If you have a very hot day or a very cold day, uh, people are going to be using their heat, their ACs, and that's going to drive up demand, which in turn drives up the prices. So the idea here is that if you had a meteorologist who is making forecasts for uh, the demand as well as wind generation, solar generation, that would be inputted into a model. And uh, we kind of compare it to what the default forecast is from, say, an ISO. And the trader can kind of look into that and say, hey, this is where I can get an advantage in the market and make some money. So I always thought that that was pretty interesting. And then from a utility perspective, uh, you know, I can't really go too much into detail about what I do, but the general idea here is you are basically providing the information to people who are operating to try to make sure that the lights stay on for everybody in the service territory. It's uh, We want to predict what the demand is going to be on a given day. But in turn, we also want to see if we have enough generation, whether it's wind, solar, or other forms of energy. So there's kind of two different sectors in energy, and I'm glad to have been part of both. Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, there's probably going to be more of a demand for meteorologists in those sectors, since that's like the wave of the future, especially with renewable energies and things like that. Do you think that there are going to be more opportunities? Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially with a lot of companies that are uh, trying to go green. Uh, even some utility companies are transitioning their resources to more of green energy. And so, you know, with what happens with climate change, a lot of uh, cities, for example, need to kind of reevaluate their infrastructure, emergency preparedness. And so, you know, meteorologists are kind of going to be at the forefront of uh, whatever these developments are going to be. So I think this is a terrific opportunity for anyone who's interested in that. And I would argue it's probably one of the fastest growing, if not most lucrative sectors out there, just given, you know, the amount of opportunities that are going to be presented, not just now, but in the future. Do you think that having some business experience is helpful for the position or does that not matter at all? I mean, I, 
I always like to tell people, if you can have meteorology plus another specialized skill, that's going to kind of separate you from the pack. And, you know, there are not a lot of people that have the STEM degree, a meteorology degree, which is kind of niche, but also that business background. And I find the business and finance background to be especially helpful because those people are not usually scientists. Those people do not think about things the same way that we do going through our science education. And so you, in some sense, kind of act as a translator. You look at this weather information, you kind of look at the models and, you know, kind of use your own knowledge to come up with a forecast, but then you have to translate it in a way that these people can understand and in a way that they can actually take action from it. So having that business knowledge can kind of bridge that communication gap here that exists, I'd say, between STEM fields and non-STEM fields and just kind of understanding, you know, like, okay, well, weather impacts businesses, but just kind of understanding what they do with that information. And from there, you can kind of tailor things to be more direct. So, you know, I would strongly recommend if there's the option to do so to get that business background as well, if you are able to fit it in your schedule. That totally makes sense. What do you like most about the job? Uh, You know, I'd say the most exciting thing about the job is the fact that you know that every day you come in, you're making a difference for ordinary people. You know, being with a utility company, your goal is to make sure that the lights stay on for everybody. And so the main input of that is the weather. The main driver of that is the weather. So doing whatever that I can to provide accurate and informative forecasts that people can use to help people, you know, that's always exciting to me. There isn't a day that goes by where I come in and I feel like, you know, I'm not doing anything or, you know, I'm not helping people. So it feels quite fulfilling. On the flip side, what are some of the biggest challenges you face working in the field? Well, I would say it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about being a translator. It's that, you know, you talk to people that have a variety of different backgrounds and sometimes you kind of have to say the same thing, but in multiple different ways. So sometimes you kind of have to translate very quickly and say, well, you know, some people want things to be very technical. Like some people know about things like teleconnections or more advanced terminology, meteorology. Other people just want it to be very brief and very basic. And so kind of translating that back and forth that can be pretty difficult. I would say another difficult aspect about working in uh, the energy sector is that you have to wake up pretty early in the morning. Like my job starts right at 4.15, but you have to get up a little bit earlier to kind of review things. And of course, there's upside to that. Like I get done uh, at one o'clock usually, sometimes a little bit later, depending on uh, if there's a serious weather situation. Uh, But, you know, that certainly is not for everybody. It's hard for me. Uh, But, you know, you just kind of have to do what you got to do. But again, that's true for meteorology as a whole. I'm not sure that there is one that provides uh, a totally normal schedule compared to the rest of the world. I think everybody to some extent. Yeah, I I would. Right. I was going to ask you that before you brought it up. You know, what's the work life balance like Um, where you work? Is it is it shift work? I mean, do you have just an earlier schedule than others? Is it around the clock or do you have like a you know, does the company close at a certain time? Uh, So with this particular role, I mean, we work early mornings and then we get done in the early afternoon again. Sometimes we have to be on a little bit later if there's a severe weather situation. We also occasionally provide updates during the weekend. Uh, But aside from that, you know, we work Mondays to Fridays. So generally in that sense, you could say that it's more of a normal schedule compared to someone who works in broadcast or NWS or other uh, private sector companies where it's a 24-7 around the clock thing. You have to work weekends, holidays. We don't really do that working just for 
like a company that isn't weather-based. Uh, but there are people working around the clock when it comes to working for a utility company. Right. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of perks to it, even though you have to get up early, which kind of stinks, but I'm sure you get used to it. Well, maybe not, <laughs> but you might get used to it after a while. Well, you know, it's true. Um, you know, you certainly have to shift your sleep schedule around and there are sacrifices you have to make. Sometimes you have to kind of choose between being social or getting your sleep. So for me, uh, oftentimes I kind of choose the being social and take a nap the next day. That's usually how I kind of get what I need to. Uh, because I do believe that it's important to at least have some degree of work-life balance. And Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I understand in this field, it can be hard just given the critical nature of our roles. But, you know, I wanted to make sure that if I was going to move 2,000 miles away to a place that I didn't know anybody, that I still had an opportunity to have a social life to some extent. So we've, um, we've heard that you have a very successful weather TikTok account. How did that come about? Yeah. So I guess the background of this was, uh, COVID for me was a very transformative time. I felt like I had a lot of uh, introspective time, just kind of being by myself for a few months in quarantine. And I noticed that more and more people were downloading TikTok. And originally, I kind of thought it was like musically where people were just dancing. And that didn't appeal to me. But then I started seeing people uh, post memes. I thought that was kind of funny. So I just joined. And then as I was getting into it, I started seeing people posting informative content and some things that were kind of niche. And so I kind of had this idea. It's like, wait a minute, people are doing these videos for these niche topics and people are interested in, you know, certainly there would be people who would be interested in the weather. I didn't really see anybody who was doing it in the weather, um, aside from people who are doing behind the scenes from their TV studios, which is cool, but I couldn't do that. So I started making videos on an infrequent basis in the summer of 2020, and then it didn't really go anywhere. So I stopped and then 2021 picked it up again and again, just wasn't gaining traction. So we go to the end of 2021. This is a year and a half later. And finally, I started having videos that were getting me uh, tens of thousands of views, thousands of likes. And then it really started to blow up at the beginning of 2022. So basically from the when I started TikTok in 2020 to the end of 2021, I got up to around a thousand followers. And then 2022, when I started making more regular content, things started blowing up, ended up getting to 44,000 or so by the end of the year. Whoa. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's crazy. But I would say one of the biggest uh, things for me was the ability to live stream and just talk to people at once, answer questions. And I would say kind of my big breakthrough was during... Uh, Hurricane Ian. So during Hurricane Ian, I would just kind of, you know, after my day was done, just hop on the live stream. And, you know, I was on for several hours a day at some point. And at that point, um, I believe I got over a million viewers throughout the week of people just wow. wanting to know what the update was on the hurricane. And some people were asking me questions like, hey, uh, should I evacuate my family? Am I going to be okay? And to know that I was bearing that responsibility, it was kind of a mixed feeling on one hand, you know, is, uh, you know, kind of exciting or to some extent, because it's like, well, you know, they trust me as a voice and I'm one of the only people doing this that actually has the credentials. There's a lot of bad information out there too, which kind of was my motivation. Uh, you know, I kind of wanted to be the one person with credentials to give accurate information, but then number two, it's also a little bit nerve wracking because you know that in some cases it could literally be life or death and they're trusting me with that. So, 
I would say the other upside with being on TikTok is just the idea of, you know, those communication skills that I was emphasizing. You're talking to a wide variety of people around the world. And that's something that actually really excited me about TikTok because on a platform like Twitter or Instagram, you're kind of capped because you have followers, your followers see it. But with TikTok, your videos could theoretically be pushed to everybody because of the way the algorithm works going on to the For You page. So because of that, it had the most opportunity to reach the people that it needed to. So, you know, it's reaching people of all different backgrounds all across the country and to some extent, uh, even the world, depending on the video. So that all was very exciting. And then in 2022, uh, my follower count is now up to, I think, 65,000 or so at the time of this recording. And, you know, I just continue to, whenever there's severe weather, just try to get on here, make videos and try to be as informative as possible. But also I like teaching and, you know, I want to try to, you know, explain things to people who are interested in the weather. I think there are a lot of very smart people that want to know more. And so I kind of wanted to do that as well. So the idea of just informing people, but also educating it in just kind of another way to uh, let my passion break through. Yeah. Do you have like a regular upload schedule that you've kind of balanced with your current work? Or do you find that it's mostly reacting to severe weather situations as they happen? Well, you know, work will always take priority. So it's always uh, after work hours, I just go on, record a video. Uh, the frequency, you know, I try to do something every day now, now that it's getting a bigger. Uh, but, you know, whenever there's severe weather, I definitely try to post every day and usually would go live. Like, for example, with the East Coast severe weather on August 7th, I, I think I was on for four straight hours just answering questions and, you know, tracking the storms coming in. So that's something that I would do in a serious situation. But aside from that, um, you know, whenever there is severe weather across uh, highly populated areas across the country, like the East Coast, I'll try to crank out at least one video about that. But if it's kind of a slow weather time, then I'll probably try to make more informative content. Like one video I did recently was kind of explaining how thunderstorms form and why it's kind of a misconception for, you know, a sunny day. Uh, why that is actually an ominous sign for severe weather, because a lot of people ask about that. So, you know, I try to keep it semi-regularly, but I also, you know, don't want it to get in the way of other things in life as well. So how does it work with TikTok? Do you do the video and then tell people that you'll be live to answer questions at a certain time? Or do you just do it live, the whole thing? Um, so that's something some people do. Uh, recently, I haven't done that. But basically how it works is that if you go live... Uh, TikTok will send a notification to your followers and your followers will join in. So usually it starts at like two to five people in the first few seconds and then grows to a couple hundred. And after that, you know, depending on how your followers react to it, then it gets pushed to more people. It's kind of the same principle as your videos. And the thing is, you know, the algorithm is kind of tricky here because, you know, there are some videos that blow up and get hundreds of thousands of views. And then the next one may get like, Two, three thousand views. It's pretty unpredictable. Which again, it's exciting, but it is also a little bit frustrating. So, with that live the other day, basically uh, it started out kind of small, and then more and more people joined, and there were between one and two thousand people just constantly for that four-hour period. And I think the peak that I've gotten during Ian was maybe in the seven thousand range at one time. That's amazing. Well, I'm glad you have the credentials to <laughs> to actually talk about it and, you know, really know what you're talking about. So that's a good thing. Well, that's the thing. You know, there are people out there that make these forecasts on there. And I know they're kind of ridiculous, but an average person really won't. And right. 
you know, there's, there's just so much misinformation out there, not just in meteorology, but in other fields. And so I want to do whatever I can to kind of set the record straight for people. And, you know, another motivating factor behind that is the fact that if we think about what our industry is looking like, more and more people are turning away from cable, from local news. And so there needs to be another way to get inform people about the weather. And, you know, a lot of the people that are watching TikToks are kind of on the younger side of things. They don't necessarily, you know, are, follow the weather. So to have something like that come on their For You page, that can be another way to keep them informed. So, you know, I think it's something that people, uh, it's a lot more powerful than I think a lot of people realize, you know, just because of the idea that your videos could theoretically be pushed to anybody. But again, it's very hard to predict a time. Well, we're glad you're out there fighting the good fight for true, real information. Uh, it, it's not easy, but I'm trying my best here. <laughs> so when you're not at work and you're not making TikToks, uh, you are also the chair of the AMS Board of Private Sector Meteorologists. What are some of the goals of this board? My number one goal this year as the chair was to improve transparency about the private sector because I'm finding a pretty shocking amount of people are just unaware of these private sector opportunities. In fact, uh, you know, even from some of the largest programs in the country, I had somebody come up to me and say, you know, they only taught us about broadcast or NWS. These other opportunities that are out there, you know, things that are interesting, frankly, uh, you know, may provide better work-life balance, better benefits, are just not being informed to people. And so, you know, there is clearly a gap in terms of, you know, these jobs, but then letting people know where they are and how to find them. And so I want to do whatever I can to make people aware of that, but also do so early on, because based on my experience is that college is a serious investment. We're talking a six-figure education that in many cases puts people in substantial debt. And that's something that you know can be seriously crippling to people. And so I believe that people going into college as early as they can, they need to know what they can actually get out of this degree. And, and you know, I think that if people are not aware of these opportunities that exist in meteorology, then I don't believe that they can make an informed decision about whether or not this degree is worth it for them, not just from a financial standpoint, but also from a happiness standpoint. I'm not sure that people are aware of just how brutal the shift work can be or, or even aware of the realities of it. So I just want to do whatever I can to make sure that people can kind of make a fully informed decision to see if, hey, meteorology is the right path for me. And if it's not, to try to exit that as soon as possible. Does the board... Um put out any webinars or any any other types of things? I, I believe you have a mentoring program. Um, is that still happening? Yeah. So actually, the mentorship program is uh, one of the ways that I found out about the BPSM. And I would attribute it to one of the reasons that I got my job. So just kind of a background about myself is that my senior year of college, I went to the AMS annual meeting in Phoenix, and I learned about this program. And uh, from there... You know, I was matched up with a mentor in the energy sector, Todd Crawford, and he kind of gave me, uh, you know, every couple of weeks he called me, he would kind of give me some uh, pointers about, you know, career advice, help me kind of decide between these two opportunities right after college. And I even shadowed him one day in Andover Mass at his company. And we kind of just went over what he does on a daily basis, what a career looks like for an energy meteorologist. And that was kind of one thing that always stuck with me is, yeah, this would be an interesting path to go down. Now, where this connects to later on is that, you know, he gave me connections from there that were in the energy sector. One of those connections ended up being someone who ended up becoming a primary mentor for me, and he worked as a meteorologist at Excel. Well, 
he ended up leaving that position and there was a vacancy. I applied for it. I wasn't really expecting much, but then I ended up getting the job. So indirectly, the idea of having a mentor to try to you know, guide me through my end of college transitioning to an early career professional, uh, that gave me you know, what I needed to do to be on the path that I was hoping to be on. It was basically the idea of, you know, this is what you need to do if you want to get into the energy sector, which is hard to come by. And, you know, if it wasn't for that program, I don't think I would have made it there. So given that, given the success that I've had in the field, I always feel like I have to kind of return the favor to the next generation and kind of serve as a mentor or someone that people look up to. And so this mentorship program is still going. And in fact, this year, 2023, with me as the chair of it, we actually have our highest numbers ever in terms of both mentor and mentee participation. And one of the other things that we did this year was we added a summer mentorship program. So that one, um, unlike the other one that I did, which was kind of matching one-on-one with mentors and mentees, this one is workshop-based. So we kind of have freshmen go on Zoom calls once a month during the summer. And we have a few different mentors coming in, uh, kind of serving as panelists, but giving presentations and just giving an overview of things like private sector careers, uh, different skill sets that you can have, and just forming connections from there. So we wanted to not only incorporate the people that were kind of at the tail end of college thinking about careers, but also just getting that early college aspect, those freshmen, the people who are still undecided about what they want to do. Uh, so then aside from that, one of the other things that we've been doing this year is uh, we started reaching out to universities to try to see if we can be utilized as resources. So uh, we would love to be able to do more with AMS like webinars, um, but you know, we also just want to have a clear line of communication from us directly to the university level. Because I've also found in my own experience, there just are not a lot of resources available on the internet with such a niche field. And of course, that's something that we want to try to address as well, being our board, some of the other boards, but whatever we can to give the information directly to students that is not already being accomplished. You know, that's just what we just want to do. We want to kind of utilize all of that to get back to the important goal of improving transparency, not just between students, but also between private sector METs and at the university level, which uh, I kind of helped with that when I was a part of the Mind the Gap initiative as well, just kind of giving people an idea of how the field is evolving or at least how it's changed and then what we can expect in the future and then how we should tailor our curricula based on that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely been a successful year and I think there's a lot more that we could be doing as well. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing a lot. It's really helpful for students. Um, it's a good segue here. So do you have any other advice for students or early career professionals looking to establish careers as meteorologists in the energy sector? Is there anything that you wish you had done differently or that you're glad you did that helped you out? So I would say there are two main things here that I would pass along. So number one, I believe in the idea of meteorology plus one. You have the meteorology degree plus another specialized skill because you have to kind of think about it is that these jobs, there are not a lot of meteorologists out there or people with the degrees. But that being said, you know, for each individual job, there's probably going to be dozens, if not hundreds of people applying for it. So you have to think about what I can do to stand out over everybody else, your classmates or people that are ahead of you. And of course, that's not to say that everybody is your competition, but you kind of have to be looking at that. It's like 
yeah, I have a degree in meteorology. So do hundreds of other people. What do I bring to the table that nobody else does? So for me, that background was the energy business and finance degree from Penn State. Uh, but, you know, something like programming could be very useful as well. GIS could be very useful as well. Even something like communications. I know someone who had a degree in Spanish. And of course, that comes in handy for uh, broadcast, but other fields as well. So just something that you can kind of differentiate yourself from somebody else. And then also just kind of realizing uh, how your skills translate to other fields. You know, meteorology is kind of like an engineering degree, but for the weather, if you think about the classes you take, like the four semesters of calculus, the thermodynamics, the physics, the chemistry, you put that all together, uh, plus the programming we do, the statistics classes, and, you know, there is a lot more that we can do with the degree than we realize, even things that are just outside of the weather. So, again, that kind of just goes to the idea that, you know, this is actually a pretty lucrative degree, but I'm not sure that that message is as clear as it could be right now. You know, I think students need to kind of, you know, just evaluate everything that they're taking right now and just kind of being creative with the options that they want to do. You know, someone who's dead set on just being a straight up operational forecaster, you know, that's nice. But I think we need to kind of expand our horizons in terms of the job prospects, or at least the opportunities that we'd be open to. And that kind of goes into my second point here, which is just kind of be open-minded about not just the opportunities themselves, but the location. So for me, I've already moved three times since college uh, into places where I didn't know a ton of people. I moved to Maryland, then I moved to Boston, and now I've moved to Denver. And, you know, that can be kind of scary you know, especially if you don't know anybody. But unfortunately, that's kind of the nature of the field. It's that, you know, if you want to kind of move to where you want to be uh, in a time frame that's, you know, as quick as one would kind of desire, you kind of have to be open to moving to new places and experiencing new things. And, you know, for me, like, I kind of became involved in my local communities. It's not really easy to make friends, especially, uh, you know, with COVID and kind of on the uh, other side of COVID as well. You know, it's still very difficult. You have to be creative. But I do think that that provides an example, not only for you to move up quickly in your career to perhaps become more successful, but also I think it's good for personal growth. So those, I think, are the two main things here that I would recommend to somebody. Well, that's great advice for sure. Well, Andrew, we're so grateful for everything that you've told us about your career. However, before you go, we always ask our guests one last fun question at the end of our show. So what is your favorite hobby? Yeah. So my favorite hobby is, uh, you know, currently just exploring and traveling to new places. So, you know, kind of a little bit of background about that is, you know, growing up, I didn't really have an opportunity to do too much outside of, you know, maybe within a few hours of, you know, my home, I was always a little bit envious of people who had opportunities to go on vacation. So now that I'm kind of an adult, I feel like I have more freedom. And so, uh, I like to just kind of you know, do whatever I can. And by, when I say traveling and exploring, I don't necessarily mean going far away. I mean, trying new things in my town. So being in Denver, I, I knew basically nothing about it when I was moving here. So, you know, my goal is to every week try a new restaurant or to try to go to some kind of concert or other activities. So just kind of being acquainted and, you know, things like that, it kind of makes the transition easier or going on a hike every weekend, which I was kind of doing in New England as well. And, um, you know, aside from that, I do like to go on vacations. I have a, a big solo trip coming up in a few weeks, which I'm pretty excited about. Ooh, where are you going? Where are you going? <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to Spain and Portugal. Oh, awesome. Wow, I've been so to Portugal cool. and Spain, and I, lo- I loved Portugal. And, and Spain was really cool, too. Are you going to Barcelona, or are you going to go somewhere else in Spain? 
Yep. So the itinerary, I'm starting in Barcelona, then I'm going to Madrid, and then I'm going to southern Spain, so Granada and Sevilla, and Ooh. then I'm ending in Portugal and Lagos and then Lisbon. Oh, amazing. Oh, that is going to be incredible. You're going to love it. I loved it. The people were so nice, really friendly and welcoming. Um, it, it was a it was a great trip. You're gonna you're gonna love it. Yeah, I mean, if you have any recommendations, I'd be happy for you to pass it along. I will. Uh, I will. I will send you some because <laughs> some of the places um, that I went to just outside of Lisbon, like day trips, were really cool. So I will send those along to you for sure. Yeah. Did it happen to be Sintra, Pena Palace? Yes. Sintra was one of them. Yeah. That's <laughs> on my list. Yeah. That's awesome. Some of them are probably already on your list because they were really great. But thanks so much for joining us, Andrew, and sharing your work experiences with us. Yeah. I mean, it's my pleasure. I, you know, I, I love talking about what I love to do. It's been a passion of mine. And I hope that, you know, I can do whatever I can to, to educate people and uh, you know, help people kind of guide them on their career journeys. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time, rain or shine. Clear Skies Ahead, Conversations About Careers in Meteorology and Beyond is a podcast by the American Meteorological Society. Our show is edited by Johnny Lay. Technical direction is provided by Peter Killalay. Our theme music is composed and performed by Steve Savoy, and the show is hosted by Emma Collins and Kelly Savoy. You can learn more about the show online at www.ametsoc.org forward slash clear skies. And you can contact us at skypodcast at ametsoc.org if you have any feedback or would like to become a future guest. <laughs>